All right, no pressure on the preaching today. But I invite you to go and turn to Matthew chapter 18, where we're going to land in just a few moments. You know, when you're at someone's deathbed and you're talking to them, it becomes very evident what they don't talk about. They don't talk about how much money they made. They don't talk about what their career looked like or what their house looked like. They don't even talk about the touchdown they scored back in high school. They don't talk about kick six. They don't talk about wrong way bow. They don't talk about those things. Because in that moment, what's important really becomes clear. What they talk about is relationships. What, what, what means the most to you at the end are the people you love and the people who have loved you. And this morning as we begin, we're going to look at John chapter 13, where Jesus is right at his deathbed. And Jesus is reminding his disciples of what is really important. He says this to them, A new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Now just keep that up on the screen for a moment. That's a great passage. And a couple of things I want you to notice about this is that our relationships are connected. We're doing this short series called Upward, Inward, Outward, about three different sets of relationships. But they're not distinct and separate. They are all tied together. We understand that. A phrase that I've heard just a couple years ago that I found to be so true says, you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. Have you ever heard that? And in other words, how your children are doing affects you in lots of other areas. You know maybe a phrase that's, that's more familiar about your home. If mama ain't happy, what? <laughs> Sounds like you thought about that one, all right? What, what are you saying? If, if things are not right at home, then when I go to work, I carry it with me. I mean, you know that, 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 that sort of that gut feeling? You know that, oh man, I, I wish we had left on better. I wish I'd said something different. I wish we were okay. I'm texting her, she's not texting me back. That's an awful feeling, and it affects everything you do. And guys, when it comes to our relationships with God and one another and outsiders, they are all connected according to this verse. It starts with how Jesus has loved us. I love the man who was taking the, the challenge we gave last Sunday to at least spend three times this week, 30 minutes alone with God. And this man said, you know what? I've been trying that, and I can't get enough. Three times 30 minutes is not enough. I need that time with God. And here's our belief. If your time with God is good, then you're going to be different in your home. You're going to be different at work. You're going to be different toward outsiders. He says, we love one another as he has loved us. And then he connects it to the outsider. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. So all these relationships are connected. Now let me say this. They're all connected by Jesus. Jesus comes, and Jesus invites you and I into the fellowship of the, the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have existed in community since the beginning. And, and Jesus comes and invites us to be a part of this perfect community. And then he connects us with one another. A lot of us would never be connected if it weren't for Jesus Christ. You ever had that friend 
who just connected you with other people? I think about people in our, our Birmingham campus. And I, I think of Tim Jenry. If you ever spend time with Tim Jenry, he knows everybody in Shelby County, and he can connect you. I think here in Montgomery, we all know that Tim Lee knows everybody, right? I mean, he just, he just connects you. If you ever get on his phone, you will never get off it. Unless this blessed week where his phone crashed and he has lost all his contacts. So if you're tired of Tim Lee calling you, this is your moment to not give him the number, all right? Because once it's there, we tried to recruit this guy to speak at Gridiron a few years ago. You probably heard of Mac Brown, University of Texas. Somehow Tim got his number. Mac would never come, but Tim still texts him about once a month. And I'm sure this guy said, well, who is this guy in Montgomery who stays connected? But if you know Tim Lee, he's connected with everybody. And he connects us with those people, and we love that. And here's the cool thing about Jesus, is that Jesus connects us with the, the Trinity, he connects us with each other, and he connects us with our community. Now, what does this look like? What does it mean to love one another? That sounds very nebulous and vague. And so today I want to scan Matthew 18. It's a great passage. Now, please, please understand this as you study your Bible. The Gospels were not written in chronological order. Okay? Matthew's like a good preacher. What he's going to do in Matthew 18, he's going to take these different stories of Jesus. He's going to string them together to give us a picture of what Jesus' community looks like. It's just it's a great sense. So we're just going to sort of scan it this morning. I hope you'll go to your life group and get deeper with it. But we're just going to sort of scan it. What does a Jesus community look like? Look at verse 8, verse 1, chapter 18, Matthew. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? If you know context from the other gospels, they are arguing among themselves about who's the greatest. Now, these are some prideful individuals who want to be on top. And then Jesus gives a parable, a living parable, verse 2. He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child, most translations, the humble position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. First point, this is a humble community. This is where nobody is better than anybody else. Now, some of us read this and we think, what an illustration, a child? I mean, many of us know children as being very selfish, very strong-headed. Think, how does that illustrate humility? I think about my own children. I think about Lindsay. Lindsay was probably our strongest-willed child. And she just wanted to run the world from, from day one. And she had wagged that little finger. And so Stephanie was really good with her. She had a wooden spoon she used on Lindsay an awful lot. <laughs> you say, you shouldn't be talking about Lindsay. She shouldn't have moved to New York, all right? <laughs> so one day they're riding down the road in Pensacola, and Lindsay's misbehaving in the back. And Stephanie, said, Stephanie says, Lindsay, you need to stop that. And Lindsay said to Stephanie, ooh, don't tell me what to do. And Stephanie says, I'm the mom. I'll tell you what to do. Who don't tell me what to do? I mean, get my wooden spoon, Lindsay. And Lindsay looked at her and said, who don't have your wooden spoon? <laughs> Little did she know, Stephanie had a second wooden spoon in the glove box 
stopped the car, pulled off the road, and spanked that little bottom, all right? Now, that doesn't sound very humble. And that's not Jesus' point. When Jesus says we ought to be children, what he's saying is we need to be completely dependent on somebody else for life. You, you see, a child, no matter how defiant they may be, they're not going to survive without you providing them a place to live, without you feeding them, without everything you've got. And, and so what Jesus is saying is our humility is we know without God and without each other, we don't have a clue. We don't have a chance. We've humbled our, we've lost all pride, and that's why we come in this community. And there's no reason for one of us to think we're better than the other or we're over the other. Why? Because every one of us is completely dependent on God. And so it's a humble community. Now, now keep reading. Let's go to verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones those who believe in me, to stumble. It would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person from whom they come. Now this is going to get more and more challenging as we walk through this passage. Here he says, we are a connected community. How I live influences the way you live. And he says, you're in big trouble with God if someone comes into the family community of God and you lead them astray. Because what you do affects me and what I do affects you. I've seen this too many times. As a campus minister, someone comes into campus ministry and they connect with somebody and all of a sudden the person they connect with leads them into the party life. You go, no, that's not supposed to happen here. If you're part of our RSVP ministry and you, you, someone comes and, and they're seeking to overcome their addiction to drugs and yet sometimes, we have to be honest, sometimes they meet there and Satan uses that to lead one astray. You say, well, buddy, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to lead anybody to the party life. I'm not going to lead anybody to drugs. In fact, you know, quite frankly, buddy, I don't have any influence. I'm just neutral. I just come to church. I, I, just, I just show up. Time out. That is influential. If someone comes in our midst and they get around a neutral, lukewarm Christian, you will impact them. You do not have a choice of whether you influence someone or not. Your influence will be felt. If all you do is come in here to fill a pew and you're not on a mission for God, you are going to impact somebody sitting beside you. We all have influence. In fact, Jesus says, I'm telling you what, if you've got the wrong influence, you need to have radical surgery. If it's your hand that's messing you up, cut it off. If, you're, if it's your foot, cut it off. Why? He said, it'd be better for you to go to heaven all crippled and maimed than to lose your soul. So can I ask you, if everybody in this church was like you, if everybody in this church was as involved in this community as you are, if everybody was as holy as you are, as I am, what kind of community would we have? You see, we're that connected. Now, let's keep reading. Let's go now down to verse, um, verse 12. What do you think? If a man owns 100 sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 who did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing to, 
that any of these little ones should perish. Third point here. We are absolutely a, um, not just a humble community, not just a connected community. We're a devoted community. The, the, the key word in the last few verses, repeated over and over, is the word one, one, one. What's he trying to say? Everyone is needed. Everyone belongs. When you understand that we're all humbled, we all need each other, we're all connected, we all influence each other, we don't have the choice to go, there's somebody here important and some people not important. We, we, we can't be the first that says, well, you know, I know they left, but, you know, people are coming in at the same time. No, he says what we do, we do what God does. We go after the one. In fact, Jesus has really bad math. He says, it's better to rejoice over the one that you rescued than over the 99 who stayed home. That's God's heart. You've got to go after people. I'm asking you this morning, who are you pursuing in the name of Jesus? Who's that one person you know who doesn't know God, who's fallen from God, that, that we, don't, we don't go, oh, well, sorry, miss them, wish they were here. No, no, you pursue them. Read the neatest story this week. I, week, I hope you've been, you've been watching Michael Phelps in the Olympics. Has that not been absolutely amazing? And after the last Olympics, when, when Phelps thought, thought that his swimming career was over, he went into a deep depression. He told ESPN, I need to figure out who I am outside the pool. And he confessed, my life is a train wreck. I'm like a, a time bomb waiting to go off. I've got no self-esteem, no self-worth. There are times when I don't even want to be here. It was just not good. I feel lost. Now listen, those are words from a guy who even four years ago was the most decorated Olympian of all time. And then you know, in the year 2014, he was arrested for a DUI. His life had completely fallen apart. And at that point, he cut himself off from all of his loved ones, all of his family, and here's what he said. I thought the world would just be better off without me. I figured that was the best thing to do, just in my life. That's hard to believe, in it? Don't judge somebody from the outside. But then... An all-pro linebacker named Ray Lewis, who Phelps looked as an older brother, reached out to him. Lewis, who's an outspoken Christian, says to Phelps, this is when we fight. This is when our real character shows up. Don't shut down. If you shut down, we all lose. And he gave him that famous Rick Warren book, The Purpose Driven Life. And Phelps mind exploded that there was purpose for him to live in, in fact in, in Phelps last medal race I don't know if you heard the interview afterwards he said I'm calling Ray Lewis I got to talk to him about this and I love that because that's the illustration we're talking about there's someone out there lost someone confused someone depressed and we're the person who doesn't just sit back and say well we're gonna pray about it we hope they get better no we go after them we go after them. So I ask you one more time, who are you pursuing? Who am I pursuing in the name of Jesus? Now then he gets even a little bit deeper. And this is really challenging. When we get to Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. He says, if your brother or sister sins, 
go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. Now, 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 step one here. You go to them privately. Did you notice what step one is not? It's not, okay, I find out there's a, a sin in your life. Let me go tell somebody so they can pray about it. Oh, I'm so sorry. Do you know about Diane? You know what she's been doing? Would you please join me in prayer? I mean, let's, no, he says, you go. Now, understand here, he's not talking about something that gets on your nerves. He's not talking about just something you don't like about them. He's talking about they have fallen into sin. He says, step one is we go. Step two, if they don't listen there, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they won't listen to you, then, then get a group of brothers and sisters who really love them and go, we want you. We're after you. Don't give up. You see, you're humble. You know you could be there as easy as they are there. You're not going with arrogance. You're going in complete humility. And then he says, wow, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. That's step three. And then step four, if they refuse to listen to the church, treat them as you would as a pagan or a tax collector. Now, on surface, that sounds pretty, pretty, pretty harsh. But how are Christians called to treat pagans and tax collectors? We're called to love them. Now, the distinction here is this is a person who claims to be a part of the community of God, but is acting in ways that are rebellious toward the will of God. He says, you can't treat them like they're in the family, but you reach out to them like you would reach out to anybody who's not in the grace of God. So here's our next point. We're a correcting family. You say, buddy, that, that doesn't sound like loving one another to me. I, I don't like this part. Listen to me, guys. You know if you're a parent or you're a good friend that sometimes the best thing you can do for somebody is love them with a correcting love. We, we call it tough love, don't we? That sometimes you've got to exercise a tough love, not because you don't love them, but because you love them. The wisest man who ever lived said this, better an open rebuke than love that is concealed. What's he saying? Don't sit there and let me go and wander from God and lose my soul and go, oh, I just love him too much. I just can't say that to them. Oh, no, 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 no. He says, it's better to go and rebuke that person, correct that person, than to say I love him too much because you really don't love him. Not if you're willing to let them go in that direction and you're not going to say a word. And then Matthew doesn't want the last picture to be of correction. Then he puts together one of the most beautiful teachings of Jesus about forgiveness. So go back to Matthew 18. Look at verse 21 with me. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, uh, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against you? Up to seven times? I mean, Peter, guys, you've got to picture this. The Talmud said you've got to forgive people two times. Peter triples that and adds one. He thinks he is being so holy and so spiritual. Jesus, I know you're into this forgiveness bit, and so am I, because I'm one of yours. And so, you know what I'm going to do, Jesus? I'm going to stretch the limits, dude. I'm, I'm going to forgive seven times. Can you believe that? And then Jesus says, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. You know, some translations say there, seven times 70. What's Jesus trying to say? 77 490? No, 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 no. He's not. Jesus is saying 
No, there is no limit to your forgiveness. We, we are a forgiving family. And that's, guys, again, where these relationships are connected. Why are we so forgiving? Why are we called to, because we have been forgiven. God has forgiven me far more in my life than anything I've got to forgive somebody else for. In fact, Jesus tells a parable after this. That one guy owed his master $100,000, and, and, and the master's about to throw him in jail. He says, please, help me. Don't, don't throw me in jail. I'll pay back every cent. And the master says, don't worry about it. You're forgiven the whole debt. That's okay. The guy gets out of jail, goes directly down the street, runs into another guy who owes him $10. And he says, I'm throwing you in jail. You owe me $10. And the guy says the exact same words. Please, please, don't do that to me. I'll pay back every cent. And yet the guy threw him in jail. And the guy ended up being tortured who did that. And Jesus says, you must forgive the same way I've forgiven you. So guys, we've got to be this, this humble family where people are absolutely connected and we impact each other. We're, we're, we're connected to the point that we become community and we're even willing to correct each other. And even beyond that, we are covered in forgiveness. Let me tell you this morning, there is nothing you've done that cannot be forgiven by this family. And there wouldn't be. I can remember a point in my life where where I was being accused of something. I knew I wasn't guilty of it, but it was going to absolutely destroy my career as a minister. And I went to a group of elders, and I was trying to explain. I said, I didn't do this, and this is being said about me. I'll take a lot of detector tests. I'll do anything to clear my name. Just let me do it, because I, I can't let this stand. And I'll never forget an elder in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, named Bill Sanders. Looking across the table, he said, buddy, the truth is, we really don't care whether you did this or not. Because even if you did it, all we would do is forgive you. My friends, that's the kind of community that we're a part of. That we are called to be a part of. So let's be honest here for a moment. Just, just for a moment as we close out. First of all, this kind of community is unusual. We just don't see this much. I mean, it was unusual to the people, the Jewish people that, that Matthew's writing. They had grown up as dedicated Jews, but that had been about religion. It had not been about relationship. They'd never seen a community like this. Jesus says, I'm betting the farm on this community. If you will love each other the way I've loved you, the whole world will sit up and take notice. Because this is so unusual. In fact, someone said the greatest miracle in the early church was not what we call the miracles. The greatest miracle in the early church was the love the early church had for each other. The Jews and Gentiles, male and female, slaves and free, came together in this church and loved each other. So this kind of community is unusual, but let me say this. This kind of community is powerful. When you exist in this kind of community, it changes us. And, and what Jesus says is not only will it change us, but my friends, if we can establish this kind of community in this church, I'm telling you, we don't need an advertising campaign. It's going to draw people. Because I'm telling you, there's nobody else who can create this kind of community on the face of the earth except Jesus and his people. And then when it happens, Jesus says, it's like a magnet. But let's be one, one more honesty. Let's, quotation Nathan Capps shared with me this week. Uh, John Mark Comer, 
Our generation aches for belonging, yet wants to keep its options open. But you cannot have community without commitment. We want it. We think, buddy, this sounds so exciting. Can you imagine being a part of that kind of love, that kind of community? But here's the deal, guys, is we want it, but we don't want the commitment to make it happen. And so we ache for it, we long for it, we're lonely, we need it. We're not changing the way we ought to be changing. The world's not changing certainly the way it ought to be changing. But, but you know what? I want to keep my options open. And so for a few TV shows, for superficial friends on Facebook, we negate what should be real and robust and loving. And we lose it. And so I'm asking you today, would you commit yourself to building this kind of community? Would you let your relationship with Jesus, his love and forgiveness and grace and correction in you become reflected in the way we treat each other in this body? And if you feel disconnected and you feel lonely and you don't feel a part, would you commit yourself to being a part of this? Would you commit yourself to diving into these Bible classes where we're going to try to build community in just a few weeks, of diving in your small group and and, and building real friendships where they really know what's going on with you and, and they still love you? We ache for it. We ache for it. Well, where would it start? Let me say this, guys. It, it all starts with humility. It will all start when we're humble enough to say, you know what? I can't live without this. i got to have it. We're about to stand and sing, and if you got to have it, and you need to commit your life to Jesus or recommit your life to Jesus, and you yearn for this community, and you're willing to do something about it right now. You know you drifted from this community. Please come and let us pray for you before we leave this place. Let's stand together and sing.